folks, this is Zach. Welcome back to Wisconsin. I know it's been a while since we've had an episode for you, uh, but as I always like to say, it's never too late to get started again. Today we have a special guest, actually all the way from the land down under. Jason Boyton is a PhD student in exercise physiology, and he focuses on the influence of heat and cold on athletes. And so since we're participating in the sport of cyclocross and we see weather conditions ranging from the hot days of the beginning of September all the way to the freezing cold temperatures of December and January here in the Midwest. Figured it would be he'd be a good guest to have on the show. So this is probably going to be a two-part episode. Uh, we had a lengthy, very interesting conversation, and so like with the Dave Blodgett podcast, we'll break it up into two parts. So today is part one of my conversation with Jason Boyton about the influences of heat and cold on cycling performance. All right, so we have another one of our, I guess, Wisconsin training uh, specials here for the off-season, and today... I'm hanging out with Jason Boyton, uh, who used to live in Wisconsin, and now he's uh, in the land down under for a PhD program. So Jason, if you want to just kind of introduce yourself and let us know what you're studying. I think you're still in college, right? <laughs> I don't think that, that, well, technically it's university, right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> he, started out, he, he started out with the hard questions first, right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, Jason Boynton, I am um, currently... A uh, PhD candidate at Edith Cohen University. My research is in cycling performance and um, environmental physiology and thermal regulation and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, specifically, my research is looking at how temperature affects intervals and interval training. And currently, I just finished up my first lab study and I'm Currently looking at the data when I get a chance here in Wisconsin um, on my workcation here. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's basically what uh, my academic side right now, um, and uh, that's always been about cycling. My undergrad research is always my undergrad research. My master's research was all about cycling and performance, uh, and then on the other side of stuff. Um, I do, I do coaching. I have a small coaching business and I help athletes out, um, get fast. That's <laughs> what my focus is there is just to help people perform better. And so, yeah, the, the, the coaching is more the applied side and then the, the PhDs kind of, um, drives a lot of that. So they work out really well. It's like, you know figuring out more knowledge to help people perform. And then when I see that people are performing from that, then it, you know, pushes me into, well, PhD programs and things like that. So, um, yeah, the program's really good. I can't speak enough about it positively. Like I have a, um, my advisor, Chris Abyss is, um, like very, he's a young, really, uh, motivated, um, advisor. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's, I don't know, like, he, he hate to say, like, world famous, but, like, in, in his circles, he's really well-known. Well-known, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, there's that new cycling science book that came out. He's got a couple chapters in that. Um, that was with um, uh, Stephen Chang. 
And so, and then also, so then I have another advisor, Paolo Manespa, and he was actually one of Chris's grad students, and he's one of the world experts in, uh, in road sprints. And so, like, he, he did all of his PhD research on looking at the different aspects of sprinting that happens at the end of, like, Grand Tour events and r- long road races and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I just, just a, a, Perth is super cycling-centric, and um, it's just a great place. The weather's great, obviously, like that. So, yeah, it was, you know, I miss home, but it was actually, and then it was, it was a good just good choice to move down there and like start that kind of adventure i guess so, yeah. yeah it sounds kind of like you've taken uh you know biking and made it really nerdy and sciencey and stuff studying things like that but you specifically mentioned two things why we're here today you yeah. mentioned intervals yeah. and thermal regulation so cyclocross is obviously here in wisconsin especially we start racing i remember my first race ever it was like 85 degrees in september and the last race of the season it was approximately 10 so, you know, so there's like a 75 degree difference in terms of uh, the temperatures that we raced in, and that's yeah. your area of expertise. Um, so, just to start off, you had talked about, I was reading, you have some excellent articles on Training Peaks. Uh, if you want to look those up, Coach Boyton or Jason Boyton on Training Peaks, he wrote some excellent articles. We were talking about the optimal temperature for exercise. You know, what is that, and how did, how did science figure that out? Um, well, I guess it would take this. Uh, take a few steps back sure. and um, like when you when you start these this conversation about ther- thermal regulation I like to start out with just kind of understanding heat and how heat and exercise kind of relate with each other uh, and that's first of all then you have to realize that there is an un, kind of an ideal range in which in which the body, uh, ideal range for temperature in which the body operates and I'm horrible with numbers and names so I mean most people remember that as uh, the 98.6 and in, in Celsius that's 37 degrees but actually there's uh, some really good counters for this these really really specific, precise numbers core temperature and that kind of stuff is really relates back to the individual more than anything but the important, the take-home point for that is that there is this temperature where the body functions the best at, and um, at a molecular level, that mostly has to do with um, en- enzyme function and things like that. So if if you raise the temperature, your um, the kinetics and things like that of what's going on at a cellular level works really well because you've increased the temperature and you have more molecular kind of mobility um but at the other side if you heat things up too much it's like what happens when you cook meat like the changes color and that's happening because the proteins and things like that are changing shape uh and when you change the shape of a protein you change its function or affect its function most likely negatively and so that's why the body has to like come up with these things that keep us in a certain range of temperature and you add an exercise, and um, yeah, from the blog, I think you caught it, that there's uh, 80% of the energy that we use to create work just comes off as heat. So, and then 20, approximately 20% of that goes out as work. So, 
we have to, when we exercise, we have to figure out how to get rid of this excess heat, or otherwise we'll decrease our performance. Um, and so that, that um, heat removal actually is kind of a performance paradox because what happens is, is if you don't remove the heat, you're going to have a decrease in performance. But actually some of the systems that are in place for removing that heat also remove or reduce performance. Mm -hmm. And um, that's because you have something called uh, one of the main factors is cardiac drift. And that's basically if you are, if we put you on a uh, Velotron or a, or, or a trainer or something like that, and we just said ride consistently for 250 watts, what you'll see is that your heart rate will increase over time, even though the, the power output has not changed at all. And so what's happening there is that as your core temperature and your body gets hotter, your body has to remove that heat and a lot of, and so you only have a finite amount of, you have, you know, you have the, the blood, you have a, that's that watts, that wattage needs a certain amount of oxygen coming to it, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but in order to get rid of that heat that's created, you also have to push blood out to the uh, cutaneous, you have to, or out to the cutaneous, you have to get it out to the skin. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the blood goes from the heart to the muscle to the skin. It's, it either goes where it has to sh shoot um, blood, this warm blood, out to the skin so that it can cool off. And in order to do that, you have to, the heart has to work harder to, to, and to maintain, still maintain the, um, the amount of work that's going on. So, yeah, so the, the, then it comes down to this optimal temperature. Um, and, and, you know, the thought being there that if we can, if, is there a temperature where we can kind of keep the, the an environmental temperature, excuse me, uh, is there an environmental temperature that someone can exercise in that will actually help to reduce this tax on the cardiovascular system and hopefully improve performance? And it's important to kind of understand, like you said, like how how they got to that point. And so there's two clusters of research that are around that. One cluster, and you have a science background, so you understand, like the is is a is a retrospective study. Mm -hmm. Basically, the data is already sitting out there somewhere, and you just kind of kind of look at it. And so that ret the retrospective data is from basically marathon. Uh, they look at how people performed in marathons, and they looked at the temperatures. And, and if you have a big enough data pool, then that's pretty easy to do. Right. Um, and much easier when someone else already collected it. <laughs> yeah, so someone's I can already... I assure you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah, so... It, and, you know, there's the pluses and minuses of that, um, but I think it's ELY was the researcher that did, like, three studies around that LE. Um, and so he, they came up with something like 10 or 11 degrees Celsius, which translates to about 50, 52 uh, degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, on the other side, you have the lab-based studies, right, where you're collecting the data yourself, and... So there was a study that came out in 1997 by Galloway, and what he what they did was they basically took people 
um, like healthy individuals, put them in a heat ch- in an environmental chamber and had them ride to exhaustion at a certain wattage, and they had the temperatures of uh, four degrees. Um, they had the ten degrees uh, Celsius, which comes out to about the fifty, and I think they had something else in there, and then they had a really hot one. I think they might have had closer temperature, and then they had a really hot one. And so what they, what the Galloway study was able to do was kind of build a curve of, because um, they saw there was a detriment uh, at four degrees, performance detriment, and the other side of the curve was really hot. And again, I, can't, I think it was, must have been like 27 degrees Celsius or something like that. But they saw a curve, and again, it built right around that 50 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which I think for a lot of people, especially Australians, yeah. <laughs> They're, they're like, well, that's really cold. That's cold to them. Right. And they're like really <laughs> surprised that that that, that temperature is, is ideal. But that's a, I think for this discussion is a really important thing to have in the back of your head. Um, so uh, because, again, cyclocross is really close. A lot of cyclocross can be really close to that temperature on one side or the other. I would say probably the median cyclocross <laughs> yeah. temperature, yeah. the average cyclocross temperature is 50 degrees. Yeah. Just yeah. the question is how often are you there? Yeah. That sounds like end of October, early November races. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think this is that in the is to understand what was, what was in the literature, the methods that was given, and then the differences between what you have in, in, in real life. So for the retrospective stuff, it was running, so the speeds could potentially be slower, mm-hmm. the events are longer, and the intensity is going to be lower, right? Um, but a lot of those individuals are going to be pretty healthy. And I think they went into that data later, and they saw that the people that were really healthy had... Um, were affected less uh, by the by the temperature than the people who are unhealthy. So if you're looking at cross, you have very well-trained people and not so well-trained people, so you can kind of consider that as well. Um, on the uh, For the Galloway study with the lab study, what you will find is that, one, they weren't trained cyclists. Two, they had like zero to no fan. Um, the warm-up was non-existent. They just basically dropped them in the room and said, go, which is not like what, what we do. And it was also a steady state exercise to exhaustion, which is the, there's a lot of kind of argument in the literature about these tests to exhaustion because no one races like that. Right. Um, so there's other s- studies out there actually that came out of the, the exact same lab that I work in right now that looked at like just basically time, 40K time trial performances in different temperatures. And unfortunately, they didn't get, they only got to about 17 degrees Celsius, which is like 60 degrees. So they didn't get anywhere as cold as like what, what we would see. Right. Um, the other thing is that um, cyclocross is pretty stochastic in nature so you could argue that the ups and the undulations and power output and stuff like that could also affect it um but i would argue it's probably not as bad because if you look at the heart rate data it probably isn't going to undulate as much as you think it like people usually like bring their heart rate up and it just like plateaus. Yeah, I was going to say, any cyclocross rider knows that although your watt, your power output is constantly varying, your heart rate is kind of through the roof Yeah, yeah. for the most part. Yeah, and so 
Yeah, I would guess. I would guess because of that, it's it, the stochasticness of it probably isn't going to affect it as much. So, with the data with the study that I last, what I just did, where we looked at and by, uh, we actually did a really the study that I just did was really close to the Galloway study, and that we did. Um, uh, five four-minute intervals at four degrees and thirteen degrees and twenty-two degrees and thirty-five degrees Celsius. So that's like thirty-nine degrees Fahrenheit, which yeah. is really cold. <laughs> um, uh, then we had fifty-seven degrees f- Fahrenheit, room temperature, and ninety-five degrees. And so what we saw there was like just uh, and you know I haven't had a chance to go through all the data yet, but the but what I noticed was that the core data. For even for those rest periods, it didn't cool down as much as you would think it was. It did, it just basically kind of just sat there and went down just a little bit, and then that next time you hit an effort, it would go up again. So I would imagine the stochasticness of the power outputs is going to have almost no effect on the the power output between that stochastic effort and and the steady state effort mm-hmm. where heart rates are matched. By stochastic, you mean varying. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. Case. yeah, yeah. So hopefully that's not too much heavy duty into the science to, should we yeah. tell a joke really quick or something <laughs> like that? To, well, no, to, I, to, to, to keep people from like, because I, 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 I do, I do, I will, I will definitely get into like the more applied, like yeah. easy, like stuff, but um, hopefully like that's, you know, it's, it gets to, you know. <laughs> it's like I said, I'm not going off too much on any tangents, and people are not, um, their eyes aren't glazing over with Well, I, I should note that Jason is actually Dave Blodgett's coach. So, for those of you who listen to our Dave Blodgett podcast, I believe one one person was like, man, Dave is a nerd. So, I can see why you guys work together so well. And I would also say that people seem to respond pretty positively to that podcast. So, I think it's totally cool. So, I guess one question, I actually have a bunch of questions, but. So one that I was actually literally just experienced yesterday. So we're talking about how the optimal temperature is 50 degrees. And so I'm embarrassed to admit this, but because of work, I've been stuck on the trainer riding because I've been so busy. But so I have a virtual trainer and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, tour is in the Alps right now. So I wanted to do Mount Venteau, which I'd done back in February. And, you know, I averaged a certain wattage mm-hmm. output back in February. And so then yesterday I did it and I was doing good for like the first half and then my body just kind of fell apart, which, you know, so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, to what extent is that a result of the fact that it was really freaking hot and I, you know, I sweated a ton and I lost like gallons of water versus me being, having a bad day or whatever. You know, what are the drop-offs in performance that we're talking with these different temperatures? Um, well, I think you can split that into two kind of, um, Things because I was looking at this and I was like, oh, I, I should probably go into the factors that are kind of affecting people's heat. Yeah, sure, we're jumping around, but yeah, so, go back to that. That's um, true. So I guess you could kind of look at it as like uh, acute things mm-hmm. that will affect different athletes differently. And then certain athletes, after you are exposed to heat a certain amount of time, you have the uh, acclimation or acclimatization. Acclimatization happens naturally, and acclimation is something that you do in a lab or is prescribed to you. Um, so, you know, as an individual, you know, if you have a higher body fat percentage, if you have 
um, that's going to affect you, obviously, because your body fat's more insulation. Um, as you actually, exercise and training have a big overlap with benefits uh, to help you in the heat. So if you have a high cardiovascular ability and a good cardiovascular system, you'll ha- you should be able to handle the heat better than someone who's untrained and kind of a couch potato. Okay. So that's already going for most endurance athletes. They already have that going for them. Um, the other thing that's going for like more of the high and elite athletes is this kind of this idea that's behind the surface to volume ratio. And you know, you've probably read about that. Um, but two athletes. Two endurance athletes, short, stout guy, tall guy, weigh the same. The short, stout guy has, probably has um, less surface area to lose heat, that, the heat that he's creating, right? So that's going to negatively affect him. The tall, lean guy, um, uh, lanky guy, I should say, should have more surface area to, um, to lose heat to. That's the same thing with, like, if you have heavier people, they're going to have... Uh, less surface area. It's, it, if you think about like polar bears and how big they are, and they're in the winter or the winter, they're they're up north where it's cold versus like Arctic fox or not Arctic foxes, but um, desert foxes. You know, big appendages and lots of you know small animals. So there's actually a I forget the principle, but there's actually a principle that kind of discusses that in terms of uh, biology. Um, and also the exercise intensity. If you are, have an ability to, if you have a really high FTP and you can hold that the wattage, you are going to be able to create. You're going to be creating more heat than someone lower than you. So that I wouldn't obviously doesn't that doesn't turn into an argument like you know decrease your watts so you don't <laughs> so you don't create as much heat. But it does come into the fact of like when you start dressing. And, and you're looking at, if you're a cat four and, and you're looking at the cat two and you're like, wow, he barely has to wear anything. And you're like, well, yeah, because he's throwing down some huge watts through this, you know, and he's just creating more heat. Yeah. Um, so those are the kind of, just a few of, of the, I think, of the main factors that would affect an individual and how they should approach their, um, how and the temperature would affect them. Um, personally, but as you say, like there's when with um, you could respond differently to heat throughout a season depending on how many, like your uh, state of uh, acclimation. And so, if you haven't been heat exposed in a while, then your acclimation, uh, your your performance in the heat would be poor. So. Um, with acclimation to heat, adaptation can happen over a two-week time, and and it would, and that's assuming there's there's frequent exposures, and those exposures are enough to uh, spur an adaptation. So, say you do um, seven to fourteen sessions over two weeks. That sounds like a lot, and, but but this is just experimental for um, just for conversation's sake. The first adaptations, you can split that into two parts. The first adaptations that happen are cardiovascular, so increases in plasma volume and blood volume um, and and things along those lines, which in terms of exercise is a really good adaptation. And it's also really great because now you have more retained water around for sweating and things like that. The second half of those, the second half of that period is arguably not 
quite as important to performance is it's mostly sweat ad- adaptations. So things like your lower electrolyte content from your sweat, you, you have a quicker rate or sweat rate response. Um, I, I think you also increase your rate of sweat. So those things happen a little bit longer down the road. So when you come into that effort, the, I mean, you could also argue that maybe you didn't pace yourself right and things like that. You just, and cause heat, you come in and it's not like altitude altitude. You, when you're that environmental stress is it's like instantaneous, it's like, but like heat will affect you down the road as the, as your body warms up to it. And as you create heat internally and the, that heat is not leaving your body. So well, yeah, my times for the segments at the beginning of this were pretty climb, close, right? They're better, they're actually better than <laughs> yeah, last yeah. time. And I'm like, Oh, I'm feeling good. You know, I've got six months or whatever of training in. And then it was like you said, it was just like, Oh man, those numbers are going down. So it might be kind of what you're explaining. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so jump in, can I jump in really quick? Yeah. I, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but in one of the posts that you wrote, you said performance in an event is not affected by your, um, acclimation or your acclimatization. Okay. So the, is that's that just that's, for like a short term event. Can you, that's, that's actually that something. So, so the, there's also an on the heat acclimation. Now it's kind of a, um, hot new topic. Pun intended. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, and this is what my part of my research has, has to do with too is looking at heat acclimation and how it can perform, how it can help performance in temperate conditions because it's people are looking at it like the altitude training. They're like, wow, you do go to altitude, you get these adaptations, and these adaptations could also help exercise um, and performance. And it's the same thing with the with the heat training right now. But there's a lot of nuance to it right now, and I'm not certain, and this is my expertise, and so I'm not, I'm not sold on it. And like, okay. as Dave, you know, Dave, like, yes. he's a skeptics, you know, like yeah. that's, and so, and I'm looking at it a little bit differently, and that's what my research is about. But there is that thought right now that heat acclimation will help performance in temperate conditions, but I think for most of the listeners, it's if you have the heat acclimation uh, session or just going out and riding your bike or doing a good session in intervals, it's probably just better to ride your bike because, I mean, that's probably your limiter at this point. But um, so those are the heat acclimations. The other side of it is the cold acclimation and acclimatization. And in that article, uh, you I mentioned in there that... And at the time, I was basing the ACSM Advanced Physiology book, mm-hmm. and I kind of wrote th- read through it, and I was, and, and they really didn't like touch on anything about cold acclimation and affecting performance. And now that I've read through more of the literature, and I, I look at it, and also having anecdotes, um, so I guess I step back a little bit. Uh, one of the original questions that I was working with on my thesis was was um, was orc green edge guys coming out of Australia and then getting dropped in the European winter were really suffering because mm-hmm. they were basically in the training all summer, right? Yeah. When it was winter up in the northern hemisphere, and then they then their first few races uh, in the classics and stuff like that with the weather, they were just getting decimated which is weird because you'd think that maybe they'd be dialed in getting yep. a true not stuck on the trainer or whatever kind mm-hmm. of off season yeah, so yeah. it's kind of an interesting so th- question so that 
based on like it's one of those things where as a scientist you're like you're saying one thing and then you see it in the field it's not going anywhere like you think it is and like, yeah. so you have to revisit the, the drawing board um and this is that's actually a really big question like not as far as like importance but it's this big question is like how many things could be affecting that like you have travel you have they're away from their family they're you know they have all of those things they have they're confounding in it and but you also have the fact that like they don't probably know how to dress. They could be getting sick, and 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 so it's it's kind of like, well, is this physiological? And so that gets interesting to me because there is some research out there to show that there there could be um, cold acclimatization adaptations that actually help you perform better in the cold, and so. Um, for example, um, they'd had some research where they looked at, uh, exercise economy between athletes who were definitely cold acclimatized. They were cold athletes, I guess you would say. And then they just took normal fit people and then they compared, they, I think they ran a VO2 max test and then just looked at their economies in the cold mm-hmm. and the athletes, the cold athletes, um, they actually performed better. They had a higher economy. And so there's also some um, stories out there that looked at a group that they cold acclimatized for four weeks. It was like an hour and a half acclimatization session. And they looked at how the, their bodies created heat, uh, which gets into a big thing. But um, there's two places that your body will internally uh, create heat you can get it from brown adipose tissue which is like basically your fat it's a specialized fat or it happens in, inside your skeletal muscles um and when it happens inside your skeletal muscles long story short it it affects performance all right so in a negative way in a negative way so imagine like so you've heard of mitochondria yeah right so those are like the the, the power uh, power batteries of the cell or whatever you want to call it. Um, and mitochondria basically work like uh, like dams, right? So um, the energy that you consume um, for food is basically used to power a pump that puts, quote-unquote, water on one side of the dam, uh-huh. okay? And then let's say in order to create ATP... Um, Basically, the body has a turbine that uses the water, the water, which is hydrogen protons, that comes out of the dam, and then you, it, at that point, it takes a inorganic phosphate and an ADP, puts it together, and has an ATP. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's that's how you create energy, basically at the level of the mitochondria. But if you want heat, when the body wants heat, it it puts it makes a protein that pokes a hole in that dam, mm-hmm. okay? And then that heat is created by the water, by, you know, the protons rushing out through that gradient. So maybe water isn't the best thing to think of, like, as something that creates heat, but that movement past that through that membrane mm-hmm. uh, is what creates heat. But the thing, imagine if you poke, you know, you have one hole that's, uh, that's or one area, one hole in that dam that's you know got a turbine behind it and it's powering ATP production then you have just another hole that's just 
letting all that water flow out for for heat um, you can see that by having more of those holes in your membranes you're actually stealing away from the ability of the mitochondria to create ATP because now you're trying to you know so anyways after long story short hopefully people I mean, what you're saying though in, in, in all these cases uh, I mean the heat serves some role but at a certain point it just becomes wasted energy is kind of what you're saying and it really yeah. is so, a so, loss of something yeah. that you wish you were getting production so, out of so basically what, what what I guess what I'm trying to get to is is that where the, that intrinsic uh, heat production occurs is important <laughs> so pre-acclimation to cold you have a lot of that heat production in your mitochondria in the skeletal muscle and that's not good yeah all right <laughs> and post-acclimation you have a lot of uh your brown adipose tissues will adapt and you'll get a lot of that intrinsic body temperature there and that means that there is um the uh, the mitochondria for layman's terms becomes more uh, efficient um and when you're exercising it cold. So that's you know, maybe a lot of science going on there, but I don't know if I explained it the best, but that's basically what happens after cold acclimation. Now, this the, the question is, is, is would it really even, it, does it affect people enough? You know? so here, yeah, so here's a question. I'm like, I don't want to get into, without getting into your proprietary coaching advice, because <laughs> no. I know that you have a lot. Um, but, you know, during the cyclocross season, especially... I think it's harder, especially here in Wisconsin, it becomes really hard to ride during the day. It gets dark at five, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think a lot of us probably spend most of our time on our trainer. Is that okay? And would we be better off once or twice a week trying to get outside to do a workout during cross season? You know, generally speaking, what would you advise your athletes during cross season, especially um, as it hits mid-October? I think, I think, I think, I think most like kind of outdoorsy, Cyclocrossy native Wisconsinites are going to be okay, like right because you're competing against each other. And we're all they're, everyone's kind of similar, mm -hmm. um, and their and their habits. So no, and and being able to it, the problem is is when you're coming from Dallas or something like that, right? And the other thing is that's kind of key to important to point out is in the that I didn't mention with the acclimation is. When you want to do heat acclimation, it's probably better to exercise, right? Because it's so you can do a passive or, a, or active acclimations, right? So with heat, it's better to do the active acclimation because then the the muscle and the the, t the tissue of the body is warming up internally, and then it, the heat travels out. Now, if you try the the passive where you sit in sauna, then the heat's you're just sitting there and the heat has to penetrate through the tissue that's there, mm -hmm. right? So if you're doing a heat acclimation, it's going to be better to do exercise. And I, and I know this is one of my colleagues right now, Oliver, awesome guy. Um, he's actually trying, he's working on weight cuts for um, MMA fighters. And he did passive weight cuts and he's and his results are all over the place because they just, some of the guys just didn't, their core temperature didn't raise enough to, to lose a lot of heat. So... Mm -hmm. On the other side of the thing, with this is why the other thing where I kind of like lean against cold acclimation for athletes is because it's best if it's passive, right? Because if you're exercising, you're raising your core temperature and you're you're not stressing the body the right way. Yeah. So, um, and it's funny because 
this paper that I was talking about with the four-week acclimation was actually sent to me by a coach um, who was or a, a sports scientist, and he was like, "Well, what do you think? Should we?" And I was like, Ugh, "I don't. I think your ratio, your uh, benefit to cost ratio, is just going to be really, really high for that." And so, is that in but, terms of the knowledge that you're going to gain from doing the study? Or? Oh no, no, no! Oh, as far as like putting your athletes, your oh, your okay. elite ah. athletes through through four weeks of an hour and a half a day sitting in cold. That sounds miserable. I mean, I know yeah. cycling is miserable miserable enough as it is. Yeah. So, so what you're saying though is that maybe the best training is like go to a Packers game and be like, hey, what are you up to? And you're like sitting there with the beer and the brats. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm training for, for cyclocross nationals. <laughs> it's like Coach Boynton told me to do this, and they're like, um, I was going to go with that guy. And like an insane training plan. I, I, at the end of the day, I think it's, um, it, it's. You know, you talk about marginal gains and things like that. I, I would imagine, um, you know, it's just going to be better to ride your bike than, uh, and then to really worry about it. It's really interesting, and I think it, might, it, it probably affects people at the higher levels. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like being able to handle your bike and having uh, the amount of volume and intensity that you, you can get out of it without making your life crazy and the people around you crazy and not getting fired from your job, like yeah. all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is this is interesting stuff to talk about, and, and I think people are interested in it for those elite, high-pro-level people, and then they might also be like, well, this may be the problem that I have, but I think with multiple scots, it's, it's there. So it's not as important as if I was going to, you know, I knew I was sending a guy off to nationals, and it was going to be 90 degrees there, in May mm-hmm. and they haven't seen any of that heat like that's something I'm concerned about a lot more than the cold stuff um, especially for Wisconsin natives so yeah, yeah. go Wisconsin natives yeah <laughs> so what like uh, conversely let's say that you were in Texas or you're not in Australia and you know back in uh, 2012 and 2013 we had Nats here and 2013 mm-hmm. yeah. Nats were just ridiculously yeah. cold you know, would you send your athlete there early? How would you prep them? Or would you? Or would you just say, hey, ride your bike and do what you're normally doing? Yeah, I think... Because uh, of note, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, in the women's at Hartford, Hartford was got pretty cold, but there were three women from Texas who all won their age groups. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to, yeah. to draw a conclusion yep. from that because they're all exactly. from Texas. Exactly. Um, and... You know, we've talked a lot about physiological adaptations to for thermal regulation, but you know, you're just totally forgetting about behavioral stuff that you can do to help your thermal regulation. And you know, a lot of it in, in nature, it comes down to moving, you know, moving yourself into the sun or into the shade or exercising a little bit to warm yourself up. But like, you really don't have that in a cyclocross race. So, the behavioral thing that you most likely can change is how you dress. And so for an athlete that was going that way, I would have like some serious conversations about how they dress and, um, and how they're approaching it. Because my biggest concern would be someone, an elite athlete that's always in the, in the heat uh, and warm weather and just having them overdress, which I see a lot when I race the Masters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they either 
underdress for like when it's going to rain or they overdress when it's too hot. And like, I'll be the first guy in the with your arm warmers on and like your tights, like I'm, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So the, the, I would, a lot of it has to just come down to behavior and like getting people out of the idea of thinking that 50 degrees is really cold. Cause you know, um, and just having, and having conversations about, um, you know, like people get the long sleeve skin suits mm-hmm. and that's just like, I don't know, it's such a, it's just a status symbol. It's such a fashion statement. Like this is my cyclocross, you know, uh, I guess it would suit. also be the complaints of the purists or whatever. They're like, Oh, cyclocross is going to skin suits now. And they're like, um, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. That's a complaint that I hear. Is that, I, I think it's the serious, but it speaks to the, the growing seriousness quote unquote of it. But anyway. Yeah. I always think like, I don't think of like the skins. I think of the skin seats like the best. Like I can't think. I mean, besides like time trials, but like, um, I mean, if I if I can do a race where I don't need pockets, it's like the skin suits. The best. <laughs> I used to do mountain bike races with skin suits. Yeah. Well, people that wear them swear by them. Yeah, so. yeah. They're just a comfy type of, you know, just like a comfy uh, piece of a piece of equipment or a piece of apparel. Well, that's actually so good to say. We'll totally jack up the plan here. I plan to be like, oh, we'll talk about the hot to, to cold weather, both during the warm up and during the race. And I know you have a lot to say about that. So how about you continue yeah. that, that way of thinking to give some practical advice to folks when they're prepping? Uh, and well, if, you, if, if I miss anything, just from yeah, probably uh, okay. on this. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, is the important thing is just not overdressing and kind of using the the coolness to your advantage if you can and i just kind of break it down like um for the race uh i think i i mean as much as people like the long sleeve skin suits and that i mean i'd prefer i always prefer uh, arm warmers because if i misjudge the temperature and how hard i'm working or or anything I can always pull down my arm warmers at some point, and I just—it's instantly cooling. Mm-hmm. And the arm warmer, the arms are arm warmers are great because again, talking about that surface to volume ratio, and not about whole bodies, but just uh, body parts. I mean, you have a lot of surface area for for the volume of the arm, so it's a great place to lose excess heat. So, um, and they actually have some research where. Uh, you know, they had people doing the steady state stuff and they, uh, the steady state exercise and they had, they showed the cardiac drift and they just turned on a fan and you can just watch the heart rate drop. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then like 10 minutes with the fan on and the heart rate just drops and that's good if, you know, um, so I, for me, and it's just comfortable for me. Like I just, I don't, like, I've gotten to the point where like I don't like to feel hot in races so mm-hmm. if i can if i can help it so i yeah, i definitely am a big fan of, of the arm warmers until you get to the point where like i know i'm never going to pull these arm warmers down the other thing is i'm really cautious with, with a lot of my athletes when they do tr- training sessions and interval sessions um especially and when they're racing is the base layer um you know they, they try to mark it base layers as cooling base layers but like that just doesn't make any sense especially when the the literature and the experts in the field are saying things like when they're interviewed are are saying what's the best what's the best material or what's the best clothing you should wear when it's when when it's hot out and they're like just 
being naked. Right? <laughs> so, so I don't. So I, I worry about people, who, especially in like this time of year when you th- people throw on a base layer. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, despite what the marketing is, like you're trusting another human being that may or may not like have your best interests in in mind. So yeah, I I, I wait till a pretty low temperature before I even put a base layer on. Because once you get to put a base layer on, that's it. You can't take it off during the race, right? Like, right. Well, it'd be pretty difficult. Yeah. <laughs> during a road race, you could finagle it kind of yeah. awkwardly, but during a cross race, yeah. So really, I, I try to think of the things that you can actually change during a cross race, and it's full on. So the only thing I can think of is like you, you, you can pull down your arm warmers. I mean, in a road race, you can pull down your, you can pull off your knee warmers, you can pull on the mm-hmm. arm warmers, you can pull off the cycling cap, and that will all help. But uh, in a, a cross race, yeah, and so, um, yeah. I mean, as far as dress in the in the race, I would you know be concerned about overdoing it and for obviously for the warm-up um I, you know dress a little bit warmer than what you would do for for the race because you're going to be doing it at a lower intensity excuse me um and one of the kind of i don't want to call it rules of thumb that i i kind of put out is if you have your number on and and you're doing your warm-up and you can see your number and it's cold out then you either you have either dressed too warm because you've put your number on your jacket and you're going to overheat during the race or you've put your number on your race kit or your skin suit and you're not warming up enough and you're going to be too cold during the low intensity of your warm up so oh yeah when i see people warming up and i can see their number that's that's when i get kind of i'm like right well that's, that's hopefully it's not one of my athletes so um and yeah so that's just like just a little bit of applied stuff that, that i kind of think about as far as temperature and and um how to how to uh, um approach the warm-ups and stuff like that 